Welcome back to episode 55 of Sporting Max. This episode is brought to you by The Missing Link, connecting you or your business with the biggest stars in the world through events and experiences. Please welcome number 55, Sport Australia Hall of Famer, Australian basketball legend and Melbourne Tigers legend. It's an honour and a privilege to have this man on, Andrew Gaze. No, no problems, Maxie. I've, um, we've been trying to get this uh, little get-together yeah. organised for a while, but uh, good to finally catch up. And I've been going pretty well, um, yeah. obviously in lockdown, lockdown as yeah. most people in Victoria are. In fact, mm-hmm. a lot of people right throughout the country have been mm-hmm. locked down for quite some time. So haven't been able to do too much, but uh, still keeping busy. And yeah. fortunately for me, when uh, over the last uh, six months since we've been in lockdown, I've still had the opportunity to do my um, appearances on the bounce and do some yep. stuff with the media uh, because, believe it or not, some of it is considered an essential, <laughs> an essential service. So it, um, I've had a little bit more freedom than, than some Others, people, yeah. but, uh, but it's still it's not the same. And hopefully, yeah, not the same as usual. Hopefully real soon we're, we're back at it. Yeah. Um, thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. Um, I want to start off with sort of your childhood and what it was growing what growing up was sort of like for you um, next to and obviously at Albert Park Basketball Stadium? Yeah, it was a lot different to what a lot of my classmates and my friends uh, got to experience. I I not only was living next to a basketball stadium because there was these uh, old army warehouse storage facilities that were converted in the the early 60s and they were converted into sport. And mm-hmm. there was basketball, badminton, table tennis. And in this precinct, they eventually also built a squash facility. Mm-hmm. And there was the Harry Trot football oval right at the back and the Albert Park golf course. And <laughs> basketball, what they did is when they were doing the conversion is they built a manager's residence, which was right next to and attached to the basketball complex. Yeah. And my dad was the general manager of uh Back then, it was called the Victorian Amateur Basketball Association, the <laughs> VABA. Um, and uh, I got to live in that until I was about 13. So from the time mm-hmm. I was born till I was about 13, uh, I had not only a nine-court basketball stadium as my yeah. backyard, but I also got to experience all those other sports around me. So it was mm-hmm. – uh, I didn't have any – I didn't have your typical next-door neighbours or yeah. <laughs> some of the things that normally go along with a um, – a, a normal neighbourhood, mm-hmm. but it was still just this uh, hive of activity, people coming and going. Nights were very busy because that's when yeah. most of the stadiums were fully occupied. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, I, I had thousands of neighbours in the evening and not too much during the day. But um, <laughs> what it did enable me to do, was, of course, is, is to uh, be on a basketball court and, mm-hmm. and, and practice whenever I liked. Um, so what's that like to be able to practice whenever you whenever you sort of um, wish to? I'm next to a basketball stadium. I think didn't you work um, at the stadium? I think you might have been, might have heard you were mopping the floors for some time. Oh yeah, well because my dad was the manager. Whenever someone was away or whenever they needed mm-hmm. some help uh, with with emergencies, uh, whenever the joint got flooded, mm-hmm. it was all hands on deck and, and <laughs> uh, had to do a lot of things uh, as far as the maintenance and helping out wherever I could, even when I was really young. Yeah. So, so that was just part and parcel of uh, growing up. And I, mm-hmm. I knew nothing different because, like yeah. I said, I was born there. So I didn't mm-hmm. know what life was like without that type of um, environment, <laughs> on deck. responsibility. But uh, a lot of the practice that, 
I would do wasn't necessarily formal practice. It was yep. coming home from school and there'd be balls, a ball lying around. You're, you're getting up some shots. But every single day I had a basketball in my hand because of where I lived. And mm-hmm. um, yes, there was a lot of uh, team training and with my dad being uh, at the time a player in the Australian team and then subsequently going on to be a coach. Mm-hmm. I also had someone uh, that was always available to, to help me mm-hmm. with my technique and my practice yeah. routines. And that also was really beneficial. So it was um, a combination of all those things, but primarily just the environment and the location I was living that enabled mm-hmm. me to develop my skills. Um, and compared to a lot of other people, I had a profound advantage over them because of because of those advantages. Yeah. Um, now I understand you attended our Victoria University while sort of still um, pursuing your basketball career. Can yeah. you expand on this? Well, I did. I, I when I was growing up, uh, unlike it is today, I mm-hmm. never ever thought that one day you could make a living that out of yeah. playing basketball that it would be a profession because the sport mm-hmm. wasn't as popular back then and. Until Michael uh, Jordan and Luke Longley and Dennis Well, a, a little bit before that, there was always yeah. professional leagues throughout the world, but here in Australia, it was... Um, kind of taken off, yeah. Yeah, it, was, it wasn't quite at the same level where we thought that, that there'd be a chance to make a living out of it. So yeah. um, when I was growing up, my, my parents were really encouraging and supportive of, of getting an education. Mm-hmm. And, and it wasn't until I finished high school that the, the sport started to, to make some inroads into becoming more professional. Yeah. And um, but I still had this goal of, of getting an education. So I went mm-hmm. to it's now called Victoria University. But back when I started, it was called Footscray Institute of Technology, <laughs> FIT. And uh, I started a physical education degree because I wanted mm-hmm. I felt like I, I wanted to do something involved in sport. I wasn't yeah. necessarily highly motivated to be a teacher as such, but yeah. always thought that um, getting an education in sport um, and not progress just, onto other things. Yeah, and those types of things. So I um, I did that, and it was it's a a three year course. And because when I first started, it was when I was emerging with the Australian team. So I mm-hmm. I had in the time that I um, from the time that I started till till when I finished, I. I, I attended two Olympic or three Olympic games. Wow. So it was, um, it was a difficult phase for me mm-hmm. because of uh, missing a bit of school and, and concentrating so much in, on practice. And it was a, it's a, a three year degree. It took me 11 years to finish. So I started wow. in 1985. Well, actually I started out at Footscray in 84 because I, I went to their, to the uh, TAFE school first, mm-hmm. Footscray College of TAFE and then went to FIT. So I started in round 84 and I, and I never actually graduated until 1996, I think it was, 95. Yeah. So it was, uh, yeah, it was a, a long process, but I eventually got there. I got the plaque on the wall to, to show that, uh, that I've graduated and it, mm-hmm. was, it was a lot of fun. You mentioned the Olympics throughout your sort of 11 year stint um, at university. Um, I believe your first Olympics was in 84 uh, in Los Angeles. How did that Olympic um, sort of experience help you to prepare um, for NBL and NBL, uh, NBL and NBA championships and matches? Well, uh, we, I was already playing senior basketball. Uh, the NBL started in 1979, but yep. back then there, there was two national competitions. There was the NBL 
and there was the it was called back then the Southeastern Conference, the SEC. Yeah. And um, the Melbourne Tigers, my club team, we were playing in the SEC. Mm-hmm. And I started playing in that competition very, very early. So the, from the time I was about 15. So I'd already had a lot of senior mm-hmm. basketball before I actually had my first NBL game in, in 1984. Yeah. So a lot of people look at my games history and, and only count the, the NBL, but there was mm-hmm. three seasons at least before that, that I was playing uh, mm-hmm. senior uh, basketball in the, in the Southeastern Conference. So I'd, I'd had a lot of experience and in, in 84 was my first year in the NBL yep. and I uh, was fortunate enough to get selected to, to, to play for Australia at the Los Angeles Olympics. And um, it was the fulfillment of a boyhood dream. It was something that mm-hmm. I was, um, you know, everyone I, dreams that, about. Yeah. That I, that yeah. I, that I'd set myself a goal at a very early age mm-hmm. for that to happen. And it was a unique experience. You, 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 it's hard to really um, understand and appreciate mm-hmm. not only just the basketball. The basketball is basketball. You play in the Olympics and you've got the basketball competition. And like I said, we'd played a number yeah. of international games. I'd played for Australia at the juniors. So I'd, I'd had that international competition. But the thing about the Olympics is more the, the other thing. You know, you're living in the Olympic village. You're surrounded yeah. by these other great athletes. You're, you're in a city mm. that's super hyped about um about the olympic games and the 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 eyes of the world is on it so it's more those peripheral things that 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 play on your mind than the actual basketball so when you were coming into the tigers and i think it was 1984 how did you obviously mentioned you got selected um sort of be with the tigers but how did um you know joining the tigers come about well i started with the tigers uh when i was five uh the melbourne tigers as a club well, and still is a club that you can start from the under 12s and go all mm-hmm. the way through to senior ranks. It, mm-hmm. it is a club. Uh, a lot of the NBL teams, well, all the NBL teams now are just franchises that they are, yeah. they, are they don't, they rely on a broader feeder system for, yeah. to, to, for developing players to, to eventually go on to play in the NBL in the NBL and hopefully for Australia or, or internationally. Mm-hmm. So they rely on all the clubs and will select the best players that come into this senior club. Whereas mm-hmm. the Melbourne Tigers were, is probably a, a little bit more like what you see through other parts of the world where there is actually yeah. a feeder system that comes from the ground all the way up. So yeah. I started when I was um, five, six, playing in the under 12s. Wow. And then I actually... Um, I started senior basketball playing for, for the Melbourne Tigers when I was 15. So I was wow. very, very young. I started senior basketball really early and, um, and it grew from there. So what you mentioned where um, clubs sort of grow and get their talent from the bottom up, um, we're sort of seeing that um, arise in AFL with I think St Kilda's got like a next generation talent and a few other clubs um, from where you start at the age of around 12 or 14 or 15 and you go up and I think their players hopefully get you into their club as like a sort of next-gen player. Right. Yeah, that they have their academies, I think they refer yeah. to them. And, uh, and yeah, I, I think that it's important when you've got these clubs that uh, ultimately have the, the most resources to, to put back in the game and continue mm-hmm. to develop the sport. The AFL do a great job and, and the clubs uh, um, are now having a greater attention and priority in that type of development. And yeah. I think it, a lot of it started back with the Sydney, with the interstate teams and, and what mm-hmm. they were doing and 
and trying to develop their ta- their their, um, their mm. talent in states that where the sport is not as popular as it is here in Victoria. Mm. So uh, I think it's great. I think the more of the elite clubs can provide resources to help uh, develop the, the the younger players, ultimately the better the sport's going to be. Um, so moving back to your sort of career and journey, um, in 1987, you had a 44-point season average um, alongside a 60-point game and I think it was five 50-point games. Um, but then when you're performing at such a high level um, personally, but the team's not having success, what's that like? Yeah, it's, it's, it's um, a lot of people when I'm asked about my career, they focus in on that year or that season where I had 40, where I averaged 44. But it yeah. was really something that I don't look back on with all that fond memories. I, yeah. I would still uh, look back on it as something that I'm proud of because it was part of my journey and it was mm. really helping with my uh, development individually. But mm-hmm. when you're involved in team sport and you're playing at the elite level and mm-hmm. where you, you have to deal with the scrutiny of fans yeah. and others, uh, it, it, it's it's very, it's very little compensation when mm. individually, if you're doing well and you're not winning, it, that they a lot of those performances become somewhat meaningless. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, it was a, it was like I said, it was part of the journey, but not something that I look back on where I highlighted as one of my career highlights. Yeah. I, I look at it more as an important phase of my development than uh, mm-hmm. some type of milestone. Um, so prior to the 1993 championship, um, in 1992, you guys came runners up uh, to the Southeast Melbourne Magic, um, so close to that championship title. Can you tell me how you use that sort of heartbreak to fuel the determination um, for the following season and what you may have done differently to get to the championship? Well, if you look back on my time in the NBL, I, I don't think it's a coincidence when you see we lost, like you mentioned, we lost in 92 and ended up winning in 93. Mm-hmm. We did the same in my second championship in 96. 96 and 97. We lost uh, in, in the grand final series and then we end up winning uh, mm-hmm. the championship in 97. And I think that it, it it's not a complete coincidence that that was the case. Yes, we're a very, very talented mm-hmm. team, but it, it when you, you get so close, it does provide that motivation that you want to get back out there as quick as you possibly can and try and yeah. right the wrongs and, and, and fix it up. And uh, you can only do that, of course, when you've got great talent, which we had. But mm-hmm. as far as the psychology goes and the determination to come back in the preseason to work that little bit harder and, and dedicate yourself and, and with that knowledge of, an experience of, of what it takes to get there and the challenges mm-hmm. that you face. So I think that it does provide a um, that that extra level of motivation as opposed mm-hmm. to missing out and you know being bundled out in the first round. You you kind of feel like you're still a, a fair way away from the goal. But when yeah. you're when you get that close and lose a best of three series um, and come up short, it does provide that little extra bit of motivation. So you mentioned. Um like both in both of your championship um, experiences in the NBL, um, the years prior to it, like the first year prior to that championship, um, you've lost to the Magic. Um, how do those your both of your championship um, experiences compare to one another? Well, they're different because the uh, the first time you have the experience, it's all new. It's mm-hmm. 
you, you, although I'd won a championship in this, like I said, playing in that um, low, that that other competition, mm. which was called the Southeast Conference. Yep. Back then, um, you get a taste of it, but this was different because the sport was emerging. It was um, a lot more popular, a lot more mm-hmm. fans, a lot more scrutiny, and yeah, um, you're there, and you 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 just you 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 it's it's you're absorbing it all, taking it all in, and 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 when you get to somewhere where the team had never been before mm-hmm. in that league, uh, it it becomes that much more special. Uh, the second time around, it's just as hard, and you, you have uh, a slightly different group. The difference yeah. between us, if you look at the, the our team from '92 to, to to '97, there was there was some um, there was some subtle changes in our personnel, but mm-hmm. it, it was pretty unique because we had a lot of the same players that were there throughout that entire journey. Mm. And to share that experience with uh, a lot of the same guys and uh, over a long period of time, it becomes uh, more meaningful yeah. because it's difficult to do in sport. To keep a similar group together for a long period of time is is not easy. And it's even more difficult these days than it was back then. And multiple championships with the same group like yeah, five with years that, later. With that time difference, it, yeah. um, it, is, it is something that, that is not normal. So yeah. <laughs> we, we were we were really proud of what we were able to do, and mm-hmm. um, I think the the '93 one was perhaps a little bit more special in that we were on the road when we won it. We were playing yeah. in Perth, and we came into the competition in the NBL in 1984, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. that grand final series we were playing against Perth in '93. Yeah. Uh, we had never ever beaten the Perth Wildcats in Perth. Throughout wow. the regular season <laughs> ever, so we we were we won our first game at home, and then the next two they finished on top of the ladder. So the next two games were going to be in Perth, and they beat us <laughs> in game two. And mm-hmm. we had to, um, you know, never having beaten Perth ever on their home floor, it mm-hmm. made it an even more historical moment because it wasn't our, only our first championship; it was the first time we yeah. had a, a win in a really hostile, difficult environment to play in. Um, when your great mate Leonard Copeland uh, came into the Tigers in 1992, <clears throat> how did you find adjusting and sort of helping each other's style of play? Yeah, he's <laughs> he's an extraordinary talent, and anytime you get the chance to play with superstars and great <laughs> talent, it's a lot of fun. And but I think the the difference between between just having an extraordinary talented teammate, uh, <laughs> Leonard and I became really good friends. And I think that that was uh, helpful because we're both super competitive, but extremely respectful of each other. And um, we were able to share in each other's successes. So we both wanted the best for each other. And sometimes even in a team environment, you, you, there can be a, a few egos and yeah. there can be a <laughs> battle for your, your pecking order in the team. And mm-hmm. that really was never the case because we were, we were such good friends. Mm-hmm. So what's it like to play under your dad and if not the NBL's greatest coach <clears throat> in history, Lindsay Gaze? Yeah, it was um, a lot of people naturally will ask that question. <clears throat> and um, I, I got a kick out of watching this year's NRL finals with yeah. the Clearies and, and <clears throat> what they were able to do in winning a title. It, it is different. I, I consider it a, a privilege. At the time, it really didn't – I didn't – when I'm playing in – because I'd had those experience from a very, very early age, like I said, yeah, I started your dad playing helping team. your technique and things like that. 
Yeah, and also playing senior basketball is when he first started coaching me in a team environment when mm-hmm. I was 15 or 16. So it was very much the norm. It, it, to mm-hmm. me, it, it wasn't a big deal. And I think because of his coaching style and his personality, it made it really compatible. And it mm-hmm. was one where um, I didn't – there was always going to be the prize from yeah. others outside that perhaps you, you might be getting some pre- preferential treatment. Mm-hmm. But that those mm-hmm. – from a relatively early stage of my career, that there was never those accusations were probably more throughout my juniors yeah. than they were in the seniors because in the seniors we're playing and people could see what you're doing and um, there was never any or too much of a debate about uh, whether mm-hmm. I was had earned the right to the opportunities I was mm-hmm. getting as opposed to being gifted them because mm-hmm. uh, the coach was my dad. So yeah. <laughs> I didn't, it was never, it was never really a huge problem for me, but I can understand and have seen in a number of different sports where it hasn't worked out. Yeah. The personality types haven't been great. And, and those relationships haven't uh, been able to transfer into a sporting environment, particularly yeah. in a team sport. Um, so ha- if you go uh, maybe a couple of years um, backwards, um, how did being recruited to Seton Hall University come about? Yeah, we went on a trip um, back then. Uh, in a, before the college seasons, they used mm-hmm. to have their preseason, and part of that was inviting international teams to come and mm-hmm. play practice games. And we'd been, I'd been doing it right throughout my throughout the eighties, and and mm-hmm. um, my first trip over there was to play against college teams would have been in 1984 and pretty much maybe not every year, but a lot of the years our club team or the national team would go over and play these exhibition games against Mm -hmm. college teams, which was part of their preseason. And my club team, the Melbourne Tigers, we did it in 1986. Mm -hmm. We went over and played against the Big East Conference and the Big East Conference back then had nine teams in it and Seton Hall was one of those teams. And we played all the teams, we had nine games, we played all the teams in that conference in the preseason. And after the game against Seton Hall, PJ Calissimo was the coach and he invited me, uh, I did quite well in that game, he invited me to stay and be a part of the team. He wanted me to yeah. go, he knew he knew that I was a, a student at university mm-hmm. and he, he wanted me to come and be a part of their team. And, and I was re- really excited about the opportunity, but my goal was always to play for the Olympics and I was part of the Australian team and the Seoul Olympic games was coming up. So uh, I, I declined that offer, but they continued Mm -hmm. to recruit me. And the assistant coach in the team is a guy called John Carroll. And he was relentless calling me up every week (laughs) for a couple of years. And eventually um, because of the Seoul Olympics, I I went to the Seoul Olympic games that they were held, I think around August. And back then, um, our season, NBL seasons, was was played in the winter mm-hmm. time, not in the summer like it is now. And um, because the Olympics was coming up, the NBL started earlier. So mm-hmm. in 1988, the season they started the season earlier, and then in 1989, it went back to its normal time, which is around April when it started. Mm-hmm. So it left this window of opportunity where I could uh, go to Seton Hall. And, yeah. and play there so I was really as I said before in the start of the, the program talking about mm-hmm. my studies I was struggling to to get through school mm-hmm. because of all the time missed so I thought well 
The Olympics is finished. I'm not going to have any Australian team commitments. I can go to Seton Hall, get some semesters of study out the way that would uh, be attributed to my course, and yeah. I'd be get some more credit. So that's how it all came about, and it worked out. And fortunately, it was just the fate made it just an incredible experience because we mm -hmm. went through to the championship game and unfortunately lost to University of Michigan in overtime in the NCAA final. Uh, yeah. But it was still just a, a fantastic experience. Uh, that NCAA championship game against Michigan um, in overtime, 80-79 loss. How do you sort of view your time at college and just couldn't win that NCAA championship? Yeah, well, when I went there, we were uh, tipped to finish mm -hmm. seventh in the conference. Wow. So there's, <laughs> 300, there's 300 college teams and we play in the mm -hmm. Big East Conference and we, were, we weren't regarded to do anything so mm -hmm. it was uh, i was going over thinking well this is just an opportunity to help the team out you know yeah. they're not predicted to be any good mm -hmm. but when i got there I clearly knew that there was a very very talented team and mm -hmm. um fortunately we gelled as a team and and everything came together and although we lost that championship game it still had really fond memories and it was considered a remarkable mm -hmm. uh, season because most people didn't consider us chances to do anything. So yeah. to get through all the way through to the championship game and lose in somewhat of in overtime, the game went to overtime and mm -hmm. somewhat controversial decision, uh, a foul call when, yeah, the, the, the re with three seconds to go. So we're a point <laughs> up with three seconds to go and they called a foul and they made a couple of free throws. So um so, yeah, it was disappointing to, to, to lose, but still have no regrets and real fond memories of what, what happened. So how did you find the difference and sort of readjusting um, between college basketball and the NBL? Well, for me, it was probably easier than most because mm -hmm. I'd played a lot, a lot of senior basketball against men, grown men from mm -hmm. a very early age. So yeah. by the time I was there, I, I was um, 23 years of age. I, I was a yeah. lot older. <laughs> and was having um, the adjustment was easier because I played, it was, I'd already been to two Olympic games yeah. and going into teams where national teams, where the personnel changes quite a bit. So for me, from a playing perspective, it wasn't, it wasn't that difficult. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, there's different rules you had to learn, different culture, different styles of play. But mm -hmm. because of the experiences that I had from uh, playing senior basketball, I, I, yeah. I've been conditioned to having to make those adjustments. So it wasn't, it wasn't a huge problem for me like it would mm -hmm. be for someone who is starting their college career as a 17 or 18-year-old. Mm -hmm. It's a lot, lot different to someone like me that was 23 years of age and had a vast uh, array of international and playing experiences. Mm -hmm. So how did those playing experiences on a national stage level help you to um, bring your best sort of um, game to that college um, sort of culture, like you mentioned? Well, I was only there one season and it was mm -hmm. just um, like anything, just just having the, uh, the accumulation of, of playing against men and mm -hmm. um, learning how to deal with the different styles of play in international basketball. Because when you go mm -hmm. to the Olympics, you're playing against Asian teams, European yeah. teams, African teams. So you see a whole bunch of different ways in which the game can be played mm -hmm. um and uh you learn to adapt you learn mm -hmm. to to be able to learn and mm -hmm. to be able to 
understand not just the X's and O's and the strategies, but the personalities yeah. of the people you're playing against and, and how in which you've got to cater for that. So, so um, they all, all those experiences prepared me the most for going into college or, or going and playing anywhere for that matter, mm-hmm. because you, I had these, uh, a lot of international experience. Oh, I think it was 1994, you played seven games with the Washington Bullets in the NBA. But yeah. I want to touch on uh, your time in 1998-99 um, with the San Antonio Spurs. I mean, you were there for the championship um, and 19, I think it was regular season games. Can you describe to me, you know, your whole sort of NBA experience um, in obviously the best league in the world? Yeah, it was a unique one because it all happened so quickly and it was also not a, a, a typical NBA season. There was yeah, a lockout. Was lockout. That is, yeah. there was a, yeah. So, so the players and the, the league hadn't agreed on terms and conditions for their participation. So they basically, the players went on strike. Mm-hmm. So the, the season never started until early January. And I think in that, mm-hmm. year, that season, there was a little, only a little over, well, still a lot of games, but yeah. there was a little <laughs> over 50 games played. So for me, um, it was a little disappointing that it wasn't a regular season because mm-hmm. uh, Greg Popovich started recruiting me in the 1998 World Cup, mm-hmm. World Championships were played in Greece and he yeah. was there. And at that stage, you know, they, they weren't aware, they were hopeful that it was, was not going to be a lockout. Mm-hmm. So we'd basically agreed that I was going to go over there and, and play for the San Antonio Spurs. And then the lockout came. So mm-hmm. I continued to play with the Melbourne Tigers, but with the understanding that if the lockout finished, then I would get an opportunity. So yeah. I was really anxious because um, for two reasons, one was because I started that season with the Melbourne Tigers, we mm-hmm. were having a great year. We had a really good team. We were on top of the ladder mm-hmm. and things were going really well and there was a prospect of, a, of another championship. Mm-hmm. So I was really excited about that prospect. Um, and then uh, the lockout finished and I had to make, at the time was an easy decision, but in mm-hmm. hindsight, it was probably a little bit more difficult because, you know, I, if I had a stayed, who knows, might yeah. have another NBL championship, but <laughs> decided to um, decided to take up that opportunity. And I went over there and, I was always only going over there as, as an insurance policy. Mm-hmm. When they recruited me, they wanted me to be a part of the team, but given the team that they had, there was, yeah. you know, there was always uh, an expectation that, that you, unless if someone got hurt, then you might get a, an extended opportunity. Now that yeah. year with only 50 games, no one got hurt. We, had, we remained pretty much injury free and things worked out well. So I personally didn't get a lot of opportunities to play, but had mm-hmm. a fantastic experience in, Although I, I, I um, playing opportunities weren't there to, to be a part of the team and sharing that experience and meet new friends and mm-hmm. get to know Tim Duncan, David Robinson, Steve Kerr, Jerome mm-hmm. Kersey, Mario Eli. I mean, stars of the um, stars of the, the NBA. Will Perdue was a good friend of mine, another big mm-hmm. fella on the team. So got to Malik Rose. I could go through. They were all just, <laughs> just great, great fellas and, in order to win a championship, you, you not only need great skill, but you need a camaraderie and a mm-hmm. respect and uh, a passion. And, and, and we're a veteran team and we were able to, I was able to be there and share in that championship experience. So what was that like for you to sort of sit there, um, I guess, courtside and see um, the Spurs win an NBA title? Yeah, it was good. 
it was it was like I said, I knew what I was getting into when I, I went there. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't it wasn't it wasn't a sharp guy, I was prepared for it. So mm-hmm. just you just want like anything, when you're part of a team and uh you play your role, you help out in practice, you yeah, you, you you remain ready, you know, got got a couple of opportunities throughout the regular season to, to play and uh did the best I could. But uh mm-hmm. anytime you, you you start out with a goal and you get that close to it, you 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 want nothing but yeah. the best for your team. And we were fortunate enough to win the championship and became part of uh, Spurs history. That was their first championship. And although I had very little to do with it, it was still a privilege and an honor <laughs> to be a part of it. Got the ring too, didn't you? We've got a ring. I got a championship ring. That's right. So it's uh, it's in the trophy cabinet. I don't, yeah. I don't wear it around or anything. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's there and it's a great thing to look at and walk past every now and again and bring back some fond memories of a great time. Mm-hmm. Um, now the 2000 Olympics are on home soil in Sydney you were named flag bearer and also the Australian team captain um, can you walk me through this experience as the flag bearer and maybe the opening ceremony yeah fantastic experience uh, to be to be named captain of the entire Australian Olympic team is a huge mm-hmm. honour and part of those responsibilities being the captain is being the flag bearer yeah. <laughs> and to, um, to get the chance to Introduced some of the greatest athletes this country can produce to the rest of the world on your mm-hmm. home soil, 115 to 120,000 people there in Stadium Australia. Yeah. And uh, step foot out waving the Australian flag and and to, to hear the noise and the joy and the excitement that it was bringing and yeah. the huge sense of pride in, in, uh, in my family, my sport, um, in, in our entire Australian team. It's just a, a remarkable experience and one that, that, that clearly you never forget. And yep. sometimes I have to pinch myself and think, did that really <laughs> happen? Or, or was it some sort of, That's not right. just my imagination running yeah. wild? Because it, it was such an incredible experience. But really grateful to, to have that and uh, honoured that others would think me worthy of, of having such a role. Mm-hmm. So what was the opening ceremony like for you and walking around the track um, with the flag? Yeah, it was fantastic. It was excitement. I remember uh, at, at one stage out there, and as you can imagine, when you got 150, 15 odd thousand people screaming and yeah, um, showing a lot of pride in in their team, it's 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 very emotional. And I remember as the leader, you're at the front. I'm walking around, and um, you know, you're walking on air. It's hard. Mm-hmm. To, you just seeing and trying to absorb in all the noise and sound yeah. it's, it's it's quite extraordinary and uh i can still remember after about the first 100 120 meters of walking down the track looking back and you know i was probably 30 <laughs> or 40 meters in front of everyone else so i yeah i thought geez you know better slow down but they they, they don't give you a whole lot of instructions of what you're supposed to do mm-hmm. i had the flag of a lot of people can remember me waving the flag around like a madman it was just a, <laughs> and that was purely out of excitement they give you this holster the harness to put the flag in mm-hmm. but the whole time it not required mm-hmm. you that excited and jacked up on emotion you just yeah that that thing felt like a feather it was um, <laughs> it was really easy stuff to do it was great uh 2015 you sort of made the coaching move um to that side of the court um with the Siebel, in the Siebel, sorry, with the Melbourne Tigers, and then signing on um, in 2016 with the Sydney Kings, um, obviously on a three-year deal alongside assistance and a great mate, Leonard Copeland, always finding each other back, um, and Dean Vickerman. 
what was your coaching experience like and how does it um how would you compare it I guess to your playing experience yeah I really enjoyed it anytime you have the chance to be involved in elite sport and work mm -hmm. with highly motivated dedicated athletes it's a it's an incredible privilege and we had a difficult challenge. The team mm -hmm. was had gone through some problems before that. I think the season before only won four or five games. So it was a mm -hmm. it was a rebuild that we had to go through. And yeah. um, a new ownership group. Uh, and it was it was it was great. I felt really honored and privileged to have that experience. We we were um, uh, able to to get some some good results. We never won the ultimate prize of winning a championship, yeah. but um, Went, went through it with a, uh, a general manager, a good friend of mine of the team was a guy called Jeff Van Gronigan and the owner mm -hmm. of the team was a guy called Harvey Lister. Mm -hmm. And we signed on and, and, and when I signed on, it was, um, uh, it was discussed and understood between the three of us that, mm -hmm. that there was this period that we were going through to try and rebuild the team. And the owner of the team, Harvey Lister, had an expectation to only want to really be there for three years because he was yeah. involved in the venue and, um uh at the end of that three-year period the he he sold the team to new ownership and and mm -hmm. um i moved on um and it was in history will show it was an important part of the sydney king's evolution because it was going through some really really tough challenging times and yeah um, harvey lister in particular the owner and jeff did a fantastic job of mm -hmm. rebuilding not just the team but the whole culture of the place and yeah, uh, I feel yeah, it was a lot of fun. Enjoyed it, a lot of stresses. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but but loved every minute of it, and um, yeah, very proud of what we were able to do. And uh, the Sydney Kings are are in a really good, healthy situation now, and they're always remain. Although I was only there a short period of time, I remain a a fan and yeah, and hopeful that and wanting them to do well. Um, so. What was it like to sort of being in your dad's boots, I guess, as a coach? Um, and what was the biggest challenge um, which faced you? Uh, well, the, the challenges are like every coach is, is trying mm -hmm. to get the best out of your players. And you, I, I've been lucky throughout my playing career to play with some great, play for some great coaches. Greg Popovich, mm -hmm. my dad, of course. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Ken Watson, PJ Carlissimo, mm -hmm. my Australian teams with Barry Barnes and Adrian Hurley. You, 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 it's your accumulation of all those experiences that you put into yourself. And mm -hmm. no doubt that my dad had the biggest influence, but mm -hmm. he, um, yeah, he, he, I, I did, wasn't trying to replicate any one particular coach. Yeah. I was just trying to be myself and, and try to provide for my players. The mm -hmm. ultimate responsibility is to the players to try and get them to uh, fulfill their dreams and, mm -hmm. um, fulfill their individual goals and team goals. So that was the biggest obligation you have as a coach. And um, we were lucky at Sydney. Uh, we had some good resources and we're, mm -hmm. I think we are able to um, make some inroads in, in, in getting the club back to one where it was more competitive. Um, so now if we move into, I guess, your media career, so we've sort of got the three sides um, of basketball. How have you found your time um, in the media so far? Um, with commentating NBL games? I love it. It's another way to stay involved. I get to watch all the games and, and it keeps you focused on the game and the players mm -hmm. and the strategies and yep. 
um, I really enjoy, I really enjoy commentating and hearing and just, uh, different opinions and discussing different ways the game should be played. And, mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's a lot of fun and hopefully for me, I try to bring an insight and my views to yeah. the game and, and what the, the coaches might be doing, uh, and, and, and sharing my experiences with an audience. And mm-hmm. again, it's an incredible privilege. You've got, uh, you know, a lot of people watching the game and yeah um it's it's most importantly for me i have an have uh, my approach is to try and make it as fun as possible make it as fun <laughs> if you're having fun then usually the audience will have fun as well um lenard copeland you're great mate like i mentioned before was back with you um in the commentary box this year though how was it to reunite with him again uh once again at, on sort of a professional basketball level well, it was easy because I spent a lot of time with Leonard. We, we're good yeah. friends. We Every week we're together doing something, catching up, mm-hmm. golf, other things that we do. So it was it's easy when you're doing it with someone you know yeah. so well. You know mm-hmm. how to um, engage and I think you get a good rapport with those. And, and hopefully that connection comes across on on the television as well. So it's, uh, it's, it's a lot of fun. And, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't something that um, – that that was stressful or anything because mm-hmm. uh, we know each other so well and it's 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 sometimes a little harder when you don't know a lot about your yeah um, the person you're working with to get in there to build that rapport but mm-hmm. even during the Olympics uh, John Casey I've worked with for twenty odd years or maybe yeah. longer and <laughs> Andrew Bogart when we were commentating on the Olympics mm-hmm. I got to know him really well because he played for Kings, me with yeah. the Sydney Kings so. It makes it easier when you're doing commentary with people that you're familiar with, you know their personality, mm-hmm. you know um, how they see the game and it's, it's easier to uh, bounce off and, and hopefully that comes through on the broadcast. Uh, AFL Bounce uh, on Fox Footy with Cam Rooney, Jason Dunstall and Bernie Vince. Um, what's the highlight um, of the show for you? Well, there's no doubt the highlight of the show, not just for me, for I think the audience as well, is the Turn It Up segment. The yeah. Turn it up segment. But no, it is great. For me, the chance to sit alongside some of the all-time great AFL players. I, I'm a Hawthorne fan. Mm-hmm. So to have the chance for the past, I think it's 11 years I've been doing it now, mm-hmm. um, to sit alongside not only one of the all-time great Hawks in Jason Dunstall, but one mm-hmm. of the all-time great AFL players in the history of the game. Fun guy. Um, and with Moons and 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 Bernie uh, mm-hmm. Bernie Vince and Dicko Ben Dixon, who was part yeah. of the team this year, really fun guys. It's 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 a light-hearted show. Yes, it's it has a football theme. Yeah. but <laughs> we could be talking about any sport. It's it's more. Uh, we like to laugh at ourselves, laugh at mm-hmm. some of the the things that that go on in in footy and and. Um, and just have fun. So it's it's not a a deep analysis program. It's a <laughs> it's a slapstick show that we enjoy and hopefully can put a smile on people's faces. Uh, the late great Danny Frawley. <clears throat> what was it like to get to know him um, <clears throat> on the show? Yeah, unfortunately he passed away. He had to, had a mental health illness and mm-hmm. no longer with us. But uh, he was a great guy. I knew Danny before I even uh, started on the footage on the the mm-hmm. bounce. Um, but got to know him clearly a lot more and his mm-hmm. personality and just a fun loving guy that loved to laugh. And it, mm-hmm. um, yeah, he, he was great and just a tremendous player as well. I think because yeah. of his success he had 
after his career in the media and he was, you know, loved to have a laugh, laugh at himself and have mm-hmm. a bit of fun. I think people sometimes forget what such an incredible mm-hmm. player he was. So he was a, a much valued team member of the bounce and, and of mm-hmm. the, the AFL community. And he's clearly sadly missed. Yeah. Um, now we've recently had um, Darren Lucas on the podcast, um, obviously former Southeast Melbourne Magic star. Um, he talked about the lack of recognition um, and sort of connection for former NBL players of teams um, like the Magic, which were discontinued, um, and maybe sort of the Tigers who rebranded as United. Um, what are your thoughts? Well, we're lucky at the Melbourne Tigers because we still have a, a Melbourne Tigers senior team. We play in the yeah. NBL One competition, and 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 like I said before, the start of the program, we still have the juniors, so it's still very mm-hmm. much a club. So there's still a place in which a lot of our heritage can be housed and recognised and, and, mm-hmm. and you can still feel part of the family. Now, we, they need to do a better job of it as well. And, 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 mm-hmm. and, and I think Darren's right. And it's difficult for players that no longer have teams. Um, yeah. And, and, yeah, mm-hmm. Melbourne, Melbourne United's there. And mm-hmm. it, it, was a, um, it really was a transfer or, or a change. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like that is the Melbourne Tigers. That, they've tried yeah. to, I think, to their best, Maintain the heritage of the Melbourne Tigers, but also mm-hmm. look at the Southeast Melbourne, the Giants, mm-hmm. and all those teams of the past, hence the name United. They tried to mm-hmm. bring it all together. That is really, really difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a, it, it is disappointing because players like Darren Lucas and many, many others mm-hmm. that had come through in those teams, they 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 get somewhat forgotten because yeah. they don't have the, the, the club still around to mm-hmm. honour their contribution. So it is something that I think the league has tried to do a better job of, uh, mm-hmm. and not just in Victoria. Yeah. You know, you look at teams like like, like Newcastle or, or um, Townsville and mm-hmm. West Sydney Razorbacks. The teams that have come and gone <laughs> on over the years, unfortunately, there are, there are a lot of them, mm-hmm. um, and some incredible contributions by a whole bunch of players mm-hmm. that uh, sometimes gets missed because their clubs are no longer there. So. The NBL is doing a better job of that. I think they mm-hmm. recognise that that um, that there's been a lot of contributions that they 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 try to honour. They're doing the best they can. So yeah, hopefully as we move forward, that um, that that, that we they continue to find ways to incorporate and honour those that have made con- mm-hmm. contributions to teams that are no longer with us. Um, what would be your advice to any basketballers out there uh, who want to become professional and be successful? Um, and play NBA and NBL like yourself. Yeah, just work hard. You got to love mm-hmm. the game. If you don't have a if you don't have a passion and love for the game, it's always going to be difficult, no matter mm-hmm. how skilled you are. So it, it's it's a um, it's a time consuming, labor intense goal to have. Mm-hmm. And if you're not prepared to put the time in and really commit yourself to some tough, tough, hard work. Mm-hmm. then it's going to be very difficult to achieve that goal. Talent can only take you so far. So you've, mm-hmm. you, you've got to um, really have that commitment to the goal. And I think that uh, you've got to love it. Mm-hmm. You've got to embrace it. If you're not having fun with it, it's, it's, it's really difficult mm-hmm. because of the requirements. So if you, if you really love the game, you're prepared to put the work in, uh, that's the starting point. And then, and then you just got to, um, you need a bit of luck along the way as well. That always helps. A couple of um, quick last questions, Gazy. Um, NBL championship winners um, for NBL 22. 
Oh, it's a tough one because there's a lot of new players coming in, a lot of new international yeah. um, international players coming. So, and we don't know a lot about them. So, until you actually see them, it's it's hard to 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 give a an accurate analysis. But I think mm-hmm. Melbourne United are going, the defending champs. They're going to be very yeah. very good again. Matty Delavadova coming back. I like what Perth have done, who were runners mm-hmm. up. You know, Vic Law is a, is a guy that played with the Bullets last year. He's a great mm-hmm. player teaming up with Bryce Cotton. They're going to be um, they're going to be really tough. Um, the, uh, the thing about the NBL is right from top to bottom, mm-hmm. there's very very little difference. And an injury yeah. here, an injury there, um, that that can cause separate some, teams. Yeah, it can. So um, you know the teams that made the playoffs last season, last season, Southeast Melbourne Phoenix are another team. They're, they're going to be mm-hmm. really really good as well. So it's um, it's, it's it's difficult. If you're asking me to tip a team, yeah. my early preseason tip is the Sydney Kings because I mm-hmm. think that they were unlucky. They had a lot of injuries last year. I think they've got a really good team mm-hmm. um, that they've put together. They've recruited well, so I I, I tip them, but with with no great yeah. confidence. <laughs> no great confidence that I tip them. All right, thanks, Gazy, for coming on um, the podcast today, putting aside. Um, I think it was 50 minutes or so of your time to come on and have yeah, a chat. Yeah, you're a good man. Good luck, Maxie. It's uh, it's great. And all the very best. You're doing a great job. And good luck with what you want to do too. You're after a, a good start. You're you're like the – how old are you, Max? 14. You're like the 14-year-old Warwick Giddy. This protege <laughs> coming up in the media that's doing some great things. So well done and well researched too. So keep up the good work. I look forward to seeing it. Thanks, Andrew. Really good appreciate you, it. We'll talk to you soon. Talk to you soon. Stay tuned, everyone, for Sporting Max. Thanks for listening to this episode of Sporting Max. Check us out on iTunes, Spotify or YouTube and be sure to follow our socials. This episode is brought to you by The Missing Link. This is The Voice of Melbourne and we'll see you back here real soon for another episode of Sporting Max.